Hey, welcome to Whatcha Doin' with Brandon Horwin and Sophie Williams. And today's special guest is Larry Blank. I'm a music theater guy. I grew up in New York City and worked as a rehearsal pianist, conductor on a bunch of Broadway shows. Came out to the West Coast to do the same thing, started orchestrating. So I orchestrated and conducted a lot of Broadway musicals. Great. Well, welcome to Whatcha Doin'. We are excited to have you on today and thank you for joining us. My pleasure. I'm happy to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey to music and musical theater and entertainment business? How did you get your start and sort of where did your journey take you to be able to land where you are today? Better pour yourself a tall drink. Um, (laughs) I grew up in New York City. I got interested in theater very early on. Maybe I was nine, ten years old. And in New York, Broadway musicals were big entertainment. They still are, but now it's more for tourists. In those days, my parents would take me to see Broadway musicals. So from the time I was 10 years old on, I saw everything. I'm one of those people who actually saw Anyone Can Whistle and Sondheim shows like that because I was a kid growing up around that. I was originally interested in being an actor, and I ended up going to the high school performing arts. And I was always a pianist because my mother played the piano and she made me take piano lessons. I found out that I liked music better than I liked acting, and I aimed in that direction to be a pianist. And I was very fortunate, ambitious, and right in the heart of it, you know, the high school performing arts is on 46th Street between 6th Avenue and 7th Avenue. So I'd walk out, the Palace Theater was around the corner. I was in the theater section of Manhattan going to high school. So it was very easy to go see matinees. I remember very clearly they gave us free tickets at the high school to see a play running at the Belasco Theater called Does a Tiger Wear a Necktie, which was not a successful play. It was about drug addicts. But the leading man was a young actor named Al Pacino. That's what it was like growing up around there. And of course, it was more mom and pop than it is now. It was neighborhoods in Manhattan. So Times Square right now looks like Tokyo. It was a great time and early on made friends with Don Pippen, who was a big name in Broadway musicals as a conductor. I was only 13 years old, but I met him. I went to the stage door of Mame when he was conducting and introduced myself. And he became my benefactor, godfather of my children. He's 94 years old now. But this is the man who conducted Mame, La Cage chorus line, many, many shows. And he mentored me and recommended me to everybody else. And he actually gave me my career from this kid who was an actor, the high school performing arts to a rehearsal pianist, conducted my first Broadway show when I was 22 years old called Good Time Charlie with Joel Gray and sadly, Ann Ryan King, who just passed away. Wow. I don't know who was foolish enough to let me take over, but (laughs) glad they did. And I don't want to say I was the youngest conductor on Broadway. I wasn't. Because here's a little known fact, Al Newman, the famous film composer, who's the father of David and Thomas Newman, conducted Gershwin musical when he was 17 years old. Hard shoes to follow. But (laughs) there weren't many young conductors on Broadway. And I had my chance with that show as a replacement. And it built my reputation. And Don Pippen was then able to recommend me because I already had a Broadway credit. He recommended me to Michael Bennett who was one of the great director choreographers on Broadway. And I conducted the international tour of Chorus Line, which actually played at the Kennedy Center in February of 1978. My career goes back to that period. And it just kept going from there. But Don was instrumental in recommending me for a lot of shows. He recommended me for all the shows he didn't want to do. (laughs) 
So I had a big string of flops in there. But he also recommended me to Marvin Hamlish, and I ended up being the original conductor of their playing our song. And I actually conducted Marvin's last concert before he died. Wow. It was a fortunate career. We've had a lot of history with their playing our song. Debbie Gravitt came on a few episodes oh, sure. ago. And then Anita Gillette is going to be coming on next. We're next. both delightful. Great. <laughs> You've already mentioned this, but a large part of your career is orchestrations, conducting, arrangement for Broadway shows. 27 today? Is that correct? You counted. I didn't. I didn't <laughs> really, they all roll in, but it was a lot of shows. <laughs> so what's it like being at the helm of these really powerhouse type shows? It's a little different now because the orchestras are smaller mm-hmm. and it's keyboard conducting. But I still was a crossover guy. I was young enough to know the old guard and I knew the new people coming in too. At that time, Broadway had still evolved from opera and operetta. So the orchestras were of a decent size. We never had an orchestra less than 25, 26 musicians which even then is nothing compared to a symphony orchestra or an opera orchestra. It's still a peapod orchestra, but that was the Broadway orchestra. It was a big band with strings. Those of us who were conducting Broadway really were the maestros, and we were treated with a little bit more respect than now, where you're a keyboard player and you're in a back room or on a lift above the stage. It was a big responsibility. And when they entrusted you with something like that, you had to be very responsible. It was like being with an opera company. And of course, with the composers I worked for, like Jerry Herman, Marvin Hamlish, and also Stephen Sondheim at the Kennedy Center, you were expected to carry your load. It was a great feeling to be in charge like that. And most of us who were doing the job were people who loved musical theater as opposed to people who were dragged from some other field and thrown in. (laughs) There were a few exceptions, but most of us were musical theater people who grew up with it and knew all the literature and material as you guys probably do. Yeah. You've also done a lot of orchestration work for Broadway. How do you fall into that line of work exactly? It's very interesting. When I was a kid playing the piano, I loved theater music, and I used to get all the scores from the library. My older brother and sister used to go crazy because I would sit at the piano and I never played the melody. I was always (laughs) playing from the scores, and I was playing thumb lines that the cellos were playing and the tune. They never knew what song I was playing. And I got interested in orchestration and conducting very early on. I was headed there from the beginning. And I had the great fortune of working with some of the great orchestrators on Broadway. And eventually, Erwin Costell, who orchestrated West Side Story and the movies, Sound and Music, became my orchestration mentor. An unbelievable stroke of luck. And the way we met was on a show I conducted called Copperfield, and he was the orchestrator. He took a liking to me, and I had done the vocal arrangements on the show. And he was an old straight shooter and pretty much retired but when he came down to me at the pit hand on my shoulder and says Larry you're a really good vocal arranger why don't you come to California and I'll teach you how to write and his exact words so you can conduct your own shit instead of this shit (laughs) and I ultimately did that but not right away (laughs) while I was a conductor occasionally When a show's trying out, there's so much music, the orchestrators just can't turn it out. Happening so fast, they always need help to get it done. And they usually call in, you know, people in to do work for them who are famous. Other people in the industry, sometimes they get credit, sometimes they don't. And occasionally I was asked by the orchestrator on the show to do a little bit 
scene change music and stuff. I was learning as I went. And between Ralph Burns, who was Bob Fosse's favorite arranger and Julie Stein shows like Funny Girl and he did Sweet Charity for Cy Coleman. He befriended me and threw some work at me and taught me. Phil Lang did 150 shows also, was very kind to me. There were hundreds of them. Larry Wilcox was another arranger whose name you probably don't know, but he was one of the greatest arrangers on Broadway. And of course, Jonathan Tunick, Michael Gibson, guys whose names you probably see on record, record albums. CDs, you know, <laughs> streaming. We have to have these round things that you put on a turntable. And I don't mean to seem that old, but you know, I just happened to be there at that time. Yeah. Your work also transitioned onto film, and you've worked on some films, including the producers with Matthew Broderick and Nathan Lane, the movie Chicago, amongst others. You know, what is different about the process for music for? film musicals and is it more rewarding to you to find that your work is more widespread out the big screen in that sense it's actually not as much fun working on a film because in theater you're surrounded with people not right now with covid but normally you're all working together and you're in the theater and you hear the music and everybody goes wow that's fun it's Thinks, whatever it is. It's a collaborative effort. In films, you have a tendency to go home, write it, and the only time you see anybody is at the recording studio. And it, it's done in so many layers, there's much less physical contact with human beings and doing stuff at home and from a distance. It's not as satisfying, but it is forever. And you also generally have bigger budgets, so there are bigger orchestras, yeah. and that's a little bit more satisfying. But even when I first came out here and was trying to LA, and trying to expand to television and film, I couldn't wait to go back and do a Broadway show yeah. to be around people. In that same vein, recently you've lent your talents to orchestrating and conducting for Fosse Verdon on FX, and then arranged, orchestrated, and conducted for Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square. As a conductor, do you prefer the comfort of having multiple takes you do for movies or TV, or do you really enjoy like the pursuit of perfection that comes from a live performance? Well, the funny thing is you say that the perfection of live performance involves a lot of bad notes. Because <laughs> if you listen, I'm sure you've heard like live recordings of shows and you hear a big splat in the trumpets or something <laughs> like that. And that's part of live music. Somebody overblowing a note or playing a mistake or something like that. And of course, when you do the recording, they record it over and over again. And sometimes it takes the life out of it. I've done films where they did so many takes that by the time they got it, it was like a synthesizer. Yeah. That happens a lot. Even though some of the greatest musicians are playing, it's just over and over again. It sounds mechanical. I'll give you an example. The opening night of their playing our song, which was 1979, in those days, the critics came to one of the last two previews for the opening night. So opening night was a big deal. Everybody was there, as opposed to now opening night. It's an afterthought. It's just the night of the party. The critics have already been to see the show generally. But mm -hmm. in those days, everybody came. All the celebrities, you know, it was a big deal. The musicians would be sitting on the edge of their seats because if the show was a success, they had a job. Yeah. If the show was a flop, they were out of work. So mm -hmm. I remember that first performance of playing our song. They were like this. And here's another little kicker. Sitting directly behind me, the opening night of playing our song, was Richard Rogers and his wife. Wow. And I'm walking into the pit, and I 
see Rogers, and I knew him very slightly. I had played piano on a review, but he was close to the end of his life. He smiled at me and tapped me on the shoulder, and it was that type of thing. That's the joy of what Broadway was and can be. Yeah, that's great. Was Christmas on the Square your most recent work that you've had done? The most recent film work, and it's been a year ago, just came out. You know, I finished recording it in 2019. That was a lot of fun. Dolly does a lot of her recording in her studio in Nashville, or Dollywood. Mm-hmm. She would get the tracks and record, and then we'd go back and forth. But we did socialize a little bit when the film was being shot. So she was very pleasant and enjoyable to work with. I was brought on to that film by Sam Haskell, the producer. And I was brought on because I was a theater guy. They wanted to make Dolly's music sound like a musical. Yeah. And how was um, Fosse Verdon? That's a lot of musical theater type artists and people that are really passionate about it being transferred into TV. How was that? Alex Lackamore, who's a colleague and a friend and a very fine orchestrator, called me up out of the blue. I had met him socially and said, I'm doing this Fosse Verdon thing. And I knew them both. Not well, but I'd been around during that time. And I knew that style of music growing up when Sweet Charity was happening. And I played rehearsal piano with Gwen and Bob Fosse. Uh, Ralph Burns, as I mentioned, was his arranger. And Ralph was always recommending me. So Alex said to me, I need you on this because I know you know how it goes. He brought me in basically to recreate the original stuff, which is what I did. Boosted the orchestra a little bit so you wouldn't know the difference. And I conducted all of the musical sequences that I orchestrated. And Alex did the score and supervised everything. And he, in fact, played piano on almost everything. Cool. It was great to recreate, you know, my own history <laughs> with a big orchestra as well. Yeah. It was a great series, too. It was so well done. It was. And it was accurate in many, many ways. Although it painted Fosse a little bit as a prick. <laughs> but, <laughs> but he was always very nice and really well behaved around people like me, his colleagues. was very encouraging and you wanted to work with him. You know, your work also includes orchestrating and composing music for several of the Grammy Award shows, Academy Award shows, Olivier Awards, and numerous television and movies, as we talked about some of them already. What is sort of the creative process like behind big award shows like that and sort of getting the music ready for that big night? Award shows are tough. And I've done the Olivier Awards in London for about 10 years. And it's a big deal, meaning the Olivier's are like the Tonys. The difference is it's also a television show, but the British have a slightly different sensibility. So it's done in the Royal Albert Hall or the Opera House. And I have the BBC Concert Orchestra, which is at least 50 musicians. You're talking about symphonic pops orchestra. So it's just a lot more strings. It's like doing a film. I always take the original orchestrations from whoever did them. And if I expand them, I don't change them. I just make them bigger, meaning more strings. Or if I have a bigger brass section, I do that. But I never change them. On certain occasions with some British shows that were orchestrated for four pieces, the composer comes in and says, please, please, please orchestrate it, make it big. So I'll do that. On the Academy Awards and stuff, sequences, they're basically play-ons and play-offs for everybody and in-between musics. For, for things like the Tonys and the Olivier's, whatever show wins, you're going to play that theme. We don't know who the winners are ahead of time. And if you do, it's literally seconds before. No, no one knows ahead. Let's say they nominate five musicals for a lighting award. We will write 
a play on for all five of those. And they're only eight to 16 bars long. And we put them on one page for the musicians. And it's numbered one, two, three, four, five. And as soon as I hear the announcement, just like the audience does, I put my finger up to the orchestra. That's crazy. But the thing is, I have a headset on, I'm listening, and you hear Patty Lapone say, and the winner is... So right away, I got to jump and get my fingers up so we're not late, you know? But the music is ready, the musicians are ready, and we've rehearsed it all. Mm -hmm. What I have so much fun doing is, you know sometimes that some musical is nominated that doesn't have a chance in hell. (laughs) At the dress rehearsal, they go through everything, and they announce whatever they want to announce. And I always play the one that's not going to (laughs) win. <laughs> the orchestra number one gets a laugh and it's rehearsed mm-hmm. yeah. you could be surprised but most of the time uh, mrs henderson presents is not going to win against Hamilton. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> so you have also been named resident pops conductor along with regular pops conductor for the pasadena symphony and pops so what does this position mean to you and what are some of your duties marvin hamlish was their Pops conductor. And Marvin started bringing me in to just help out, do an arrangement here and there. If he was going to play the piano, I conducted, things like that. And then, of course, Marvin died somewhat suddenly. He was unwell. Nobody knows what it was, but he passed away without warning. And they rang me up and said, would you finish the season and conduct his remaining concerts. I had no title. I was just a job in conductor. And of course, Pasadena is just a short drive from my home. So easy. And you know, all the orchestras, by the way, it's a lot of the same personnel. I mean, there is the LA Philharmonic and Costa Mesa, which is a Pacific Symphony. But so I know all the players, they can play anything. So what happened is I did Marvin's last concerts and they hired Michael Feinstein as their new pops conductor. And I had been Michael's conductor for many years and we're good friends for a long time, since the early 90s. So Michael, who had very, very little experience as a conductor, he basically called me up and said, what have I done? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, no problem. I'll just help you get ready and help prepare. And so I spent time preparing Michael to conduct the concerts and he's turned into a really good pops conductor. He's such a great musician. He's turned into a good conductor. And in the scheme of it, they named me resident pops conductor. And what that means is when Michael sings, I conduct. So I do all the concerts he doesn't want to do. (laughs) (laughs) And I conduct for him. And occasionally, if he wants to sing with one of the other artists, he'll hand me the stick. It's a really great job. I've been doing it since 2012 now. Do a series called Music Under the Stars, which is in front of the Pasadena City Hall. And every year I put together a show with with some of the musical theater talent around people who have been living here who used to do Broadway and tours and stuff. And we do an outdoor show with the orchestra, too, which is great. Would you explain to our audience how much preparation goes into these concerts for you specifically as the conductor? There's very little rehearsal, but will be the day of, sometimes the day before and the day of. With the big concerts that Michael does at the Arboretum in Arcadia, we'll have two days of rehearsal and then the show. When I say two days, I mean two three-hour rehearsals. That's six hours for basically a two-hour show. It's not a lot. You get to play everything twice. And when I do my music under the stars. I get one rehearsal night before, and then we do the sound check and do the show. The preparation is basically me making sure the singers are prepared, mm-hmm. and they have private rehearsals with them if they don't know the material. 
making sure the librarian has the orchestra parts and if we have to rent them and stuff like that. So it takes a lot of thought and the logistics of actually getting the paper on the stands. And of course, yeah. they have to get the music stands set up and the lights. It's not like we have heavy duty sound rehearsals. It's once through and let's go. Yeah. Wow. Where were you prior to the COVID shutdown? Were you working on anything? Have you been able to adjust? Have you continued working throughout 2020 and then into the new year? I was in rehearsals for South Pacific at the Toulon, France Opera House. Wow. I was in the south of France. Beautiful opera house. I've done several things. I did wonderful town there and many concerts. It's a great place to be. What's wrong with the south of France? <laughs> and the weather is beautiful. Even the orchestra is beautiful, as they say in cabaret. <laughs> so very good at playing theater music. In English, the production. I think it's the second largest opera house in France. They do wonderful operas, but they have been trying to do a musical every couple of years. And they have thankfully been hiring me. We had rumors of this virus and stuff, and we were in rehearsals. And I actually heard that it was getting worse. The producers were hearing that there might be some kind of shutdown. Flew back from France on March 15th, and France closed down on March 16th. I actually had a, an email from David Zippel, the lyricist, who, who's a friend, and he was in England rehearsing this new Cinderella that he was doing with Andrew Lloyd Webber. And he said, I heard you're in France. He lives in California as well. He said, go home. He said, I've had it on the best authority that they're going to lock France down. He says, I'm going home tomorrow. So I went to the producers and said, I know you're considering closing this down. I don't want to be trapped away from my family. So I'm leaving. They said, okay. And it turned out the next day they had to pull the plug anyway. So I flew back on March 15th and the shutdown was the next day. Of course, we all thought it was going to end March 18th. We were told all of that by political figures. You know, they kept on saying, oh, it'll go away. It'll do this. But we all know that didn't happen. And as it shut down, everything started getting canceled. The whole Pasadena thing got canceled. Broadway closed down. London closed down. And I had a few little jobs orchestrating some stuff. So I've been teaching online just for fun, mostly, to pay it forward for the people who were kind to me. So I've been doing a lot of Zoom classes and conducting and orchestration for people like yourselves that are really wanting to be in the business. Nice. What advice do you have for young artists or musicians during this time for staying creative? And what advice do you have for them going forward? It's going to be okay. This will end. Mm -hmm. It will. It's taking longer than we all thought. And when it comes back, it's going to come back full force. It'll be different but it's going to come back. The most important thing, and this is what Erwin Costell told me, when the time comes, be ready. You got to keep studying and you have to study the things that you didn't think you were going to have to. If your acting is not your strongest point, work on the acting. If you're an actor and you don't sing as well, work on your singing and the dancing and everything else. So when the time comes, you can do it all. It will turn around. And when it turns around, you're going to long for the days when you didn't have to. <laughs> do it you're gonna say give me my zoom you know <laughs> you know when you're working and as hard as we've all been working over the years and you guys have been in school studying you don't realize what you're not doing until it happens to you like this yeah. 
I got home, I decided I was either going to gain 200 pounds or lose 20. <laughs> so I decided to lose the 20 instead. It was either that or becoming a full-time alcoholic. <laughs> or, or as they say in drowsy chaperones, a world-class alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> because it's very easy to do that. So I would stay focused and as hard as it is, keep plugging away. Yeah, thank you for that. So right before the shutdown as well, you conducted uh, the Jerry Herman tribute on Broadway around February. This included a 29-piece orchestra and like dozens of Broadway stars. Now, how was this event for you? What did it really mean to you? I had to hold back the tears conducting because number one, I brought Don Pippen in, Mm -hmm. who had been Jerry's conductor and my mentor. He's 94 years old and he conducted the main number. Wow. And um, Ron Raines, the favorite of Jerry, sang the song. And we had a chorus made up of some of the best singers on Broadway. I stayed on stage with Don and I stood a foot away from him and realized I had met him when he was conducting Maine. And the funny thing was, at the end of the number, Maine, 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 it's a tricky little conduct there. Mm-hmm. And Don lost 50 years on that podium and he conducted it perfectly. And that was very moving. And there were a lot of friends on the stage. And we also were playing some of my arrangements because I had done a lot of work with Jerry. It was a great experience and great performances. I know they're all on YouTube because somebody fortunately had a camera. It also was was actually shot. It just has not been released. Mm -hmm. It was a great experience and everybody was there. Real culmination of all those years on Broadway. And of course, this all happened one month before the shutdown. Absolutely. We've heard some of your incredible stories throughout your career today. Is there one particular story that that you just love to tell from any point in your career that is just a great story? There are a few I can't tell, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you a little story that I never tell because I really shouldn't, but it's very funny. When I was doing Sweeney Todd at the Kennedy Center for the Sondheim Celebration in 2002, Steve Sondheim was the happiest he's ever been. You know, you've heard stories how he can be a curmudgeon and all that. He was just a happy guy. He was thrilled. He was sitting there seeing his shows done, and he was there every minute of it. Jonathan Tunick was conducting company because he wanted to conduct one of the shows. I was given Sweeney Todd, which I think is a masterpiece. Michael Starobin was there, not as a conductor, but he'd uh, done little work on new orchestrations for Sunday in the park. The shows were in rep, more or less. And Steve said to me and Michael Starobin, guys, we're opening company tonight. I want you to come and see it. The last time I saw company was the first preview in New York in 1970 or whatever it was. I hadn't seen company since the first preview when I was, you know, 18 years old. So here I was, and Steve Sondheim's asking me to come see the show. Tunic was conducting, and he was just thrilled to be conducting. And Starovin and I were standing in the back of the house. There were no seats. It was a very good production and, you know, enjoyed it tremendously. John Barrowman was playing Bobby. Very good people. Lynn Redgrave was doing Ladies Who Lunch. Great people. After the show's over, Steve says to me and Starovin, I'm going over to the Watergate bar. (laughs) Because we're in the Watergate Hotel. Yeah. And I want to hear what you think of the production. And Jonathan had conducted the show, it was open, and he was so happy because he's usually not a conductor, he's an arranger. He can conduct very capably, but it was a big deal for him. Awkward position to be in. So we're sitting in a booth, it's me, Steve Sondheim, 
Michael Starobin and Jonathan Tunick, which is a pretty heady group to be around, very flattering. <laughs> and we all get a drink in front of us. And I have a tendency to be irreverent. I like to be funny and make irreverent jokes. Now, Jonathan couldn't say anything. He was the conductor. So Steve says to Starobin, what do you think? And Starobin's very articulate, good friends with them. He says, oh, I thought it was wonderful. It sounded great. It was marvelous. And what a good production. Steve looks at me and says, and you? I said, I saw the first preview in New York. He said, wow. Well, he said, well, you really will have a fresh take on it. I said, yeah. And he's staring at me. And Starobin is staring at me. And Jonathan is staring at me. And I said, well, you know, the book really holds up. Stone, <laughs> stone silence. Total silence. And Steve says, oh, you're trying to be funny. <laughs> 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 and Tunic, who's very dry, says, you're really lucky he likes you. <laughs> anyway, I then broke down and said that I really enjoyed it. But it was really actually a tense moment. I thought <laughs> I, I was going to be killed. <laughs> I was so grateful to be able to pull that on Steve Sondheim and to be able to tell that finally. <laughs> uh, who, who else am I going to tell? <laughs> Thanks for sharing that with us. That's great. Well, congratulations. You've had such an incredibly remarkable career and still are doing so many incredible things. So thank you for coming on and sharing it with us today. We've really loved chatting about it. Is there anything that we can promote on here for you today in terms of upcoming projects, whether they be virtually or things that are on the horizon for when um, things might be opening? And if nothing at the moment, Folks, his name is everywhere, Larry Blank. Where there's music, there's Larry Blank. So definitely look Ooh, that's up. nice. Well, all I'll <laughs> tell you is I love it when people find me on Facebook. I love it when people go to my website, LarryBlankMusic.com. I always like to hear from people. I don't promote my teaching because I have little interest about making money. It's more about passing it on. So I'm always willing to give a piece of advice if someone writes me. And just trust me, the lights will come back on and we'll all be very busy. Absolutely. Well, thank you for joining us today. Stay well and safe, and we've really enjoyed it. Pleasure. Hope to see you on the boards. We hope you enjoyed that last episode. We're so excited to announce the launch of our campaign for two very important organizations, Broadway Cares and the Actors Fund, to directly benefit the theater industry in the new year. With the inspiration and initiation from Broadway's Cesar Samayoa and Delon Grant of Come From Away, we will now be accepting donations to our company Venmo, which is at Podcast for the near future to split the donations between those two worthy organizations. And from there, we will be doing a big monthly donation to each organization on behalf of our podcast and its guests. We hope you can see it in your heart at this time to spare whatever you can. A dollar goes a long way right now, and it's all to help an industry that has given us all so much. Thank you so much for all of your help to our listeners and followers, and please spread the word. We really appreciate it.